Welcome to the Few Podcast. Never in the field of human contact was so much owed by so many to so few. So you want to become one of the few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Things take time. I have a dream. Have a dream. Hear inspiring stories from the few and learn about what it takes to turn your dreams into a reality. It's a day for all Australians, isn't it? It's a day that brings us all together. Marvellous. Your hosts, Boo and Sean. Very excited by our guest today, Shawnee. I think in the world today, we're seeing a diversity, inclusion, polarization. Society is really trying to figure out what the hell is going on and what is what does normal look like in today in today's world. And today we've got Amna Kara Hassan has come in to talk to us about all sorts of things. Yes, and I believe that uh, you're pretty forthright, pretty straightforward, pretty open, Amna. So we're really looking forward to to diving deep and getting into some of the challenging parts and the you know the the wins and things in your journey as well. Thank you both for having me. Now, Amna, one of the things I'm really excited by is is you probably embody more diversity in one human being than most organisations with tens of thousands of staff. You're a woman who is active in sport. You're from an Islamic background. You're a professional woman as well. You must be really at the cutting edge of a lot of challenges that are facing society and businesses right now. Do you see yourself as a, I guess, a pillar or a champion of diversity? I see myself as a champion of humanity. And I think there's nothing needed more in the world right now than for us to be in touch with our humanity. I believe all the different facets of my identity, you know, being a Muslim, being a woman, being from Western Sydney, um, navigating the complexities of the world and life, I'm able to, I'm not able to just be apathetic and switch off my level of concern for what is happening in different spaces because I look at what the parallels are with my own existence. And certainly post 9-11, It was a very challenging experience to be Muslim, I think, anywhere in the world, but particularly in the West. Yeah, I think one of the challenges that we're seeing right now, particularly with the digital world, is we're seeing a lot of uh, connectivity. We're seeing a lot of insights into how many different cultures and societies live. And do you feel that there's maybe people are challenged or becoming disconnected with, with their identity and the fact they're becoming disconnected with it means they're reinforcing what they believe they should be rather than just embracing everyone for being everything. You know, we're, I think, really at a very interesting time in creating history. You know, like we feel like there are eras where we look back and say that was a historical event. And I think we're in the middle of a process and a moment in history where we're redefining conversations So all the conversations around race are shifting because of the Black Lives Matter movement in the States and that being a global movement and having an impact everywhere. So we're having conversations, I think, in Australia that as a nation, maybe we lack the maturity or willingness to sit with some uncomfortable truths. So for me, I think what's been interesting is reflecting on my own understanding of myself and kind of where I am in society and how... How have I participated in racist narratives about me? And then how have I disrupted them? 
And as much as I would like to sit here and be like, I've got it all figured out, I think so much of what we believe about ourselves, part of that is inherited. You know, it's from mass media. It's from how we see ourselves reflected or represented in society. And I can't say that the messages about my existence or my identity have always been positive. So it's about unlearning some of that stuff, you know, really like vomiting it out, like being disgusted by it and going, this is ugh, out and reconstructing what we believe about ourselves. Would you say you've seen you know, the the progression of this shift? You know, obviously it's been culminating a little bit more and a bit more prominent lately because of Black Lives Matter movement and things like that. But have you seen that over the last you know, 10, 15, 20 years? Have you seen that shift towards more openness and more acceptance? Or do you feel it's kind of you know, stayed the same? Like, What are your views on what you've seen happening you know, sort of locally and globally? What happens globally impacts us locally. And what I saw was the Me Too movement, which had a huge impact on kind of what is, where are we with the women's rights movement? Have we really come as far? Because I think what happened is we had these key moments in women's history where we went, oh, the suffragette movement happened. We had the right to vote. We've achieved something. But somewhere along the way, it seemed like everyone said, well, you can vote, like good stuff for women. And we still aren't progressing in other areas like equal pay, flex work and other aspects of women in public life. And then you see the same thing happening with the Black Lives Matter movement and its impact on race. And I just think more recently, in a very short time, there's been such, a, I think, a tipping point for are we really as as people in modern times, are we really as advanced, as sophisticated, as thoughtful human beings as we like to believe? Are our societies really at their peak? One of the challenges I find and I found preparing to talk to Amna was I felt somewhat intimidated in that podcasting this particular topic I do find it hard to connect with because I'm not I'm not a woman I don't really understand I understand the story I I don't you know I'm I'm of a Greek heritage so maybe 30 years ago there was some some animosity and there was some pushback against the Greek and Italian migration for for my family but that's that's largely gone now it's quite hard to connect with how challenging coming from a diverse background can be what does it feel like? I mean, how, how can you explain to somebody what it feels like to be a woman who has to fight to, for equality and pay? What is it like to, to be a Muslim and have a global narrative that paints a very broad brush of, of an entire religion? How, I mean, what does it feel like? I have to tell you, my, my usual statement is I'm outraged. And every time something happens, I'll be in the car with friends. I'll have a normal social interaction in public life or with family, friends, work, and I'll be analyzing what's going on. And as I'm analyzing it, because I have clarity, I feel like I'm perpetually outraged. And, you know, I have a really good friend who says to me, you know, Amna, it's, it's called blissful ignorance for a reason, but I have always refused to be someone who stays in that willfully ignorant space because I think there's nothing blissful about it. For me, what's been interesting is sitting with the sense of invisibility and visibility. So if I'm to give you an example, Boo, imagine what it was like for maybe your parents to be Greek and visibly Greek at a time that they were disliked just because of their migration experience, rejected by society, seen as other. 
So it's a very isolating experience, you know, there's like a, a sense of humiliation and degradation that comes with that. So if we're to shift the example and I say to you, boo, what would cause you to feel humiliated today? Would it be someone hocking up spit and spitting in your face? Would it be someone verbally insulting you? Would it be as simple as someone walking by you and ignoring your existence and you having a sense of what is that about? It's hard to imagine something like that actually happening, that someone would treat you that way. When you speak like that, you think, wow, that would be horrendous. Like to actually, to feel that way would be very hard to, to get up and keep moving. I had a unique experience only a few years ago when I owned a, an aviation magazine and there was a, a push and an announcement by Virgin and Qantas to achieve 50-50 on the flight deck of women and men. And we engaged six women in aviation as our ambassadors, and we launched that on social media. The aggressive response to that and the bullying and the language, you know, we don't need tits on the flight deck. You know, I've been a pilot for 20 years. I don't want some woman putting me out of a job. And I have a daughter who's 10 years old. And what really hit me was one comment I responded in quite detail on, on the social media platform. And I was like, look, I have a daughter. And I believe she should have the same rights as anyone else. What you've stated here is I find incredibly offensive. And it took a week. And then he responded personally to an email and he goes, you know what, Boo, I thought about it. I've got two daughters. And when I think about what I said, he says, I, I'm disgusted in what I said. And I just got caught up in the moment and felt personally that I was going to lose my job. And when I saw that, I thought, how many other people don't think? Just don't even think about it and this just get completely caught up in their mob mentality. And particularly on social media because you can effectively hide. You can hide behind the Facebook profile picture. You wouldn't actually go up to somebody in most cases and say that to their face. And that's that's part of the issue. Oh, absolutely. With, with that sort of thing too. And, and when you look, you know, here we are talking to Amna. Amna doesn't look outraged. She's smiling, engaged, energetic. So how do you deal with it, Amna? How do you take that outrage? And not become out because obviously in any group, it doesn't matter whether you're these days, if you're a minority group or a majority group, wherever you are in the country, in the world, you might be a minority group in this continent, but you're a majority group somewhere else. So all of us, all of a sudden, you feel outrage, but you don't express outrage. Some people obviously choose that pathway. So how do you take that feeling and intensity and divert it into positivity? Well, you know, I think there's space for both. I think there's space for outrage, you know, and we've seen that with people protesting. We saw the outrage with the Me Too movement and telling the stories. And then there's also time for change. And I think I have always been a really practical person who'll go, right, what can I do right now with the challenge that's in front of me? How can I navigate it? Now, do we always get it right? The answer is no. But I think having a commitment and an intention to do something, to create an impact, to make a difference, to change social constructs, to disrupt, that matters. And so for me, it's just about, you know, some days I get tired. Of course, you get compassion fatigue, you get frustrated. And I think self-preservation and preventing burnout is very important. So I have a really good network of people. I surround myself with people who challenge me and who support me, even if they don't understand where I'm coming from. So I do things deliberately to ensure that I'm able to maintain that energetic, passionate person who can contribute something to society. So are you effectively saying that you're using the, the outrage as 
positive fuel to drive that ambition to actually make the change? Yeah, you know, I was, I was doing a keynote once and I told an audience of bankers, no less, <laughs> they said, oh, what drives you? And I said, my anger, I'm angry at so many things. And I could just see, I mean, it was mostly middle-class white men. They were horrified. <laughs> they were probably like, what the hell is she saying? But, you know, that's the truth. That's my truth, that I do take my anger and my outrage and the things that disgust me and say, well, if I feel this way and I leave it, am I better than the person who's apathetic? You know, it's just trying to understand if we believe that change begins with us and every single one of us, starting within ourselves and then within our families, then within our community, then with our society more broadly, we can all have an individual impact. Complementing that, though, I do believe that we need systemic change. And the bigger challenge for me, there's a part of my brain that really enjoys complex problem solving and knowing that I might not ever find the solution. So I'm constantly challenged. So for me, thinking about, well, what are the structures or systems that exist that perpetuate oppression, injustice, violence, and how can I chip away at something in order that in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years, another woman or another Muslim or another person can walk this path and know that someone generations before or decades before contributed something for them to stand on. You're taking on some pretty big emotions there. You're taking on fear, insecurity, and coming at it with a systems approach is, is really fascinating. I'm fascinated by, and I think you deserve a lot of kudos for, is you pretty much founded a women's AFL team. Is that right? Yeah. How, wh where did that, <laughs> what bit of problem solving <laughs> equaled that solution? It came out of anger as well. So I drive past my local parks, like there's a long road that has multiple parks on that one strip. And I just remember growing up and going, there are never any girls. And I mean, I wasn't interested in soccer, nor was I good at sport. I wasn't interested. I had two left feet. I'd much rather buy books. But it was the idea that surely some girls in my local community would love to be playing footy. You know, I see these boys, I see their parents out. Why hasn't someone started something for girls? And then as I got older, it was also this increasing frustration around how mainstream media was representing Muslim women. So you would always see an image of a Saudi woman or an Afghani woman overseas in a different society with different governance, but somehow that was a reflection on me being in Australia and being a Muslim. And they're talking about burqa bans in Australia. And I'm just like, what the F? This is so not a reflection of who I am. Yeah. And so starting footy was a mixture of both of those experiences around gender and representation. And the reason I chose AFL is because... I, even though I was born and raised in Australia, I'd never heard of it. And I thought, what is more uniquely Aussie than Aussie rules? And so it was really about disrupting identity politics. And it seems bizarre to me now, like I was 21 at the time. But, you know, because I grew up post 9-11, I was in high school and then we were navigating race relations in Australia with Cronulla riots and the case with the SCAF boys, the rape case. So much was happening around representation of Muslim and Middle Eastern people. So I, I really felt the effects and I was constantly asking myself, how will I defy the narrative in mainstream Australia that says being me is not Aussie, that it's not possible for all my identities to coexist with being Australian. And so Aussie rules was a way of saying, well, I'm going to use sport as an international language 
that people can connect to disrupt that idea and claim my space. So that's an incredible, again, an incredible, I suppose, foresight and things of a 21-year-old to be, you know, feeling what you're feeling, but also be able to say, look, I want to do something much bigger than me and something that's going to have an impact bigger than me. Now, surely there's there's other people that are in similar situations to you. It doesn't necessarily have to be a you know, religious belief or a country of origin or anything like that. If people are feeling what you're feeling in that sense of outrage towards something, a situation or a you know an environment that are involved in or something that's that they believe is a form of injustice, what tips or, or guidance could you potentially provide to get them to maybe step forward a little bit? Because the more people we can get to grab hold of this and actually start to run with it, it's going to make the impact you know exponential over time. And so what sort of tips or things could you give somebody else who's maybe not chosen to make an actual active you know, or do an, an act of some kind that actually is about moving forward and they're kind of stuck in that outrage and fear? You know, it's so easy. We all have different gifts and it's so easy to assume that some of us who understand things clearly can move to action because it is a very difficult leap to take. And oftentimes it can feel exposing and like you might become a target. And that's also a real risk for some people. Mm. For me, I think what I've always done is go back to, we have a short life. Why am I here? And because, you know, and this might be a bit different, but this is where my faith interacts with those decisions. So if I'm to stand before God on the day of judgment and he's to ask me what I did with my gifts and my talents, the things that I was blessed with, would I be proud? Do I feel prepared to stand in front of God and be accountable in that way? And so for someone who's not of faith, I would say, what keeps you accountable? Who are you accountable to? Do you want to see our leaders be accountable? And so if we want to see people in power accountable, we also have to have a personal sense of accountability. So sit with your conviction, reflect on your values and ask yourself, why am I here? What is my purpose in this life? What are my gifts and talents and how can I use them to add value to society, to contribute something meaningful? That's very powerful. And if you look at spirituality independent of religion, I think people who are able to embrace a spiritual element to themselves or to the world are able to find someone higher than themselves to be accountable for. And as a result, tend to be able to deliver a better outcome. I think if you're, if you're only accountable for yourself and no one else, I think that's when we start to get into a little bit of, a little bit of trouble or we're accountable only to our peer group, nothing above our peer group. Again, I think we start to to find the world a little bit more difficult to to navigate. But back down on the non-spiritual level, starting a football club at the age of 21, and we're talking about a football club that you've been able to co-brand with the Greater Western Sydney. This is a really big deal. I mean, this is professional sport. This is an area that is very protected, incredibly male-dominated. So ignorance is bliss, particularly on this occasion. I genuinely did not grow up being a sport, an avid sports person. I didn't watch any sport. I didn't play any sport. And when I picked AFL, I mean, you have to imagine someone who is really uncoordinated in terms of their own fitness and skill, who has no experience or knowledge in governance or even, you know, like people knew legacy clubs, 150 year traditions. I was just like, I don't get it. Yeah. Oh, I just want to play football. <laughs> I, I think being so aligned to my purpose and so removed from that football world is why I was able to be effective. 
because I wasn't carrying any of that knowledge going, oh, this is a protected space and I can't enter it. I had no idea. So I was just going after everything and I was asking. And you know what's incredible? I learned an enormous lesson around if you ask for help, more often than not, people will show up and help you in some way. But I think we make a lot of assumptions about people's willingness to do that or even corporations or businesses' willingness to do that. And so what I started to do is ask myself, this is important to me and this is why. Why would it appeal to them to work with me? So when I had that conversation with GWS, they were new in Western Sydney. They wanted to have a positive footprint on the community in Western Sydney and really build their community and their fan base. So great. Well, we've been here for a couple of years already. We already have national coverage as a football team because of the diversity we bring to the game. Why don't we work together? And what that did for me was it helped me amplify the visibility of women you normally wouldn't see play Aussie rules. So I felt really proud of the fact that we were still able to achieve what I had set out to achieve, which is Muslim women are not what you paint them out to be. This is who we are. Hear us, see us, interact with us from where we come from, not from where you've assumed we've come from. And so I was doing that. And at the same time, I was making history, but I had no idea the significance of that. It's interesting if we look back at the intrinsic motivators for for you creating a life purpose and then fulfilling it. And for us, that's there's only a few people that do that. And I think a lot of people struggle to, to find that. And that moment in time when you connect with the purpose, and, and for you, you said it was around 9-11. Was that something that you were in the moment when, when it happened or was it something, was there anything else that that motivated you or set you on this path or for you was that the pivotal was that the pivotal event look i think even earlier than 9-11 i would say when i was a child like primary school i had an experience where my friend shelly we were playing in school anglo um kid myself and she said to me oh where are you from and i was really confused by the question because I was born and raised here. I'd never been overseas and I didn't wear hijab at the time. And I said to her, like, I'm, I'm from here. What do you mean? And she was like, no, like, where are you from? Because you look different. You know, like she was basically saying to me, like, I'm white and you're olive skinned. And I really want to emphasize here. This is like innocent kids in a playground having kids talk. Yeah. They've got no, no filter at that age. Yeah, no filter. That was the first moment that I really, I felt offended and I wanted to cry, you know, and I don't know, I didn't understand why and I didn't understand her question. And I said to her, oh, my my parents came from Lebanon and she said, yeah, so you're Lebanese. And I was like, no, I'm Australian. And then I was confused. I was like, am I stupid? Like maybe I am Lebanese and I don't know. So I went and I asked my mum. (laughs) mum, am I Lebanese or am I Australian? And my mum said, you're Australian. And I think it was from that age that I had an awareness of things because of experiences like that. And also things I'd heard at home, you know, like my dad, he was very fearful. And my mum had also experienced racism. So they were very fearful about letting us out. So we didn't have that normal childhood where you go to your friend's birthday parties because they were always like, what if something happens to you? They always wanted to keep us safe. And so I was very conscious as a child, especially being the eldest, that there's a level of distrust. 
that something doesn't feel okay for them. And I didn't want to, I didn't necessarily take it on, but I was watching and kids are observant. You know, they, even when I interact with my nephews who are both seven, they blow my mind because they have this ability to just see things and sometimes give you the most candid answers. So I think we all have that inclination as children to just see things for what they are. I think it's only when we get older that we kind of package stories around what that is. At that time though, when you, when you were, I don't know, seven, eight, when that happened, was that when you felt I'm going to be a positive force for change here or was that an organic process? Because, because obviously you are putting yourself out there now, you are taking risks, you are talking about subjects and topics that can be polarizing. And there are people that have a very different opinion to you, unfortunately, and that exists. So when did you decide that I'm willing to take on this risk and I'm willing to put myself out there and be one of the few people who is going to drive change? You know, I think you have all those small experiences, you know, they, they kind of become the things that help you build your armor and your skills and your talents and your awareness. So I had all these little experiences, but I know in that moment as a seven-year-old, I, I had this defining feeling inside. And it was this, I reject what you're saying. It was this internal defiance. I think once I just, like once that happened, every time moving forward through primary and high school, something would happen, a conversation would take place, even around Cronulla riots. I didn't want to shrink myself. I was like, I'm standing tall. I'm pulling my shoulders out. I'm standing with a straight spine and I'm standing in the face of that racism. There's no way I'm going to hide myself or withdraw from society. So I think there were all those moments and that sense of defiance, it just built up in me. So by the time I was in uni, I just wasn't taking anybody's shit. Like I was firing, you know, and the, when I started the football team and I developed a physical strength to me, cause I'd never been an athlete. There was something even that made me feel even stronger, even more capable. Like if it came down to it and someone tried to come at me, I think I tackle them. Yeah. <laughs> right. So it wasn't just like a psychological strength. It was like even a physical strength now. And that's what I've loved yeah. about football that it's helped me understand that all the gender inequality I try to disrupt is also disrupted by our presence playing football as women. One thing that I actually lived in Cronulla when that the riots occurred, and one thing that you know you, you talk about, you know, the, the concept of being disgusted. I was disgusted at the behaviour, irrespective of backgrounds or whatever. It was just, it was just, it was just a disgusting thing to observe that this herd mentality. And then the other herd mentality had to respond and it's like a, almost like an eye for an eye type approach, which based on a minority and a vast minority, and then triggering this whole concept that it's actually about a whole race. I mean, my wife is, is an immigrant. She lived in, grew up in Western Sydney. Her parents are from Argentina and came here with, you know, four suitcases, two kids, no, couldn't even speak English. So I've heard of their stories and their challenges of being, you know, discriminated against, being made like they're dumb because they have an accent or all those sort of stuff, right? And and observing that, it was just, it was a, a horrendous experience to be like right there when they're smashing windows of the cars and all sort of stuff. It was, you know, very scary at that time as well. But it just, it got me to realize it's like, wow, like that herd, you know, narrative that narrative that people have just bought into and given them a, a justifiable reason to react is something that, you know, I mean, we've seen it in all of history that it, it's very, very dangerous at times. You know, I mean, what was your take, you know, once you observed, say, the Cronulla riots and heard about what was going on, what was your take on, on that also? 
at the time I was, I think about 15 years old. And when Cronulla riots happened, I remember talking to my friends in the playground about it. I went on later to do a trek in Papua New Guinea with Scott Morrison and Jihad Dib, who brought young people from Cronulla and Western Sydney together to trek and kind of have this experience of talking about the things that we don't like to talk about in society, like race. And I just remember thinking, this did not come out of nowhere. And I still believe that, you know, things like Cronulla riots manifesting in society really speak to the undercurrent in Australia around race. We may not talk about it every day. We might not want to address it. We might even want to deny that we have a problem with racism in this country. But it wasn't just the Cronulla riots that informs that opinion. Fast forward to a couple of years ago, the Adam Goods booing saga was another overt example, something tipped over and we started to see the ugly face. And I think in both situations, racism sits under the surface. So it's there. And the sad thing is that instead of learning from our history and going, you know, we have the maturity as a nation to confront things like racism, address inequality, you know, racial inequality, gender inequality, instead of speaking to those things, we still try to avoid it and we still construct a narrative around being Australian. And Australian is, is I guess, uh, when you say Australian, it's almost humanity. We're humans and humans. One of the challenges, I think, where we're probably not being well served at this point in time is the leadership generally, globally, is feeding negativity, is feeding polarization. I think most people, and I lived in Afghanistan for, and between Afghanistan and Dubai for nearly three years. And for me, that was an incredible experience because that's fully immersive in another culture. And one thing it teaches you, particularly during that period post-Afghan war, was most people just want to get on with their lives. Most people want a job, want to be able, their kids to play on the street and just be alive and be happy. I think that's where what you're doing is so powerful, Amna, because engaging people at grassroots, engaging women and the community at something that's joyful, like sport. But I still, what I'm still trying to grasp with here and to understand how you do it is, is how you take outrage, but deliver such a positive message with it. I mean, you're, you're a very happy person. You're obviously smiling all the you time. You caught me on a good day, Boo. <laughs> <laughs> you, you've obviously, do you go through a process which is, and is this a cognitive where you go, okay, I'm really unhappy with that, but I know if I hold on to that though, I'm not going to get the same outcome or result if I just change my thinking a little bit here and deal with it in a different way. Do you have to go through a process to, to take that negative thought and then positively deliver an outcome from it? I think I've had a number of approaches. One is I believe in allowing ourselves to experience all our emotions and to sit here and tell you that, I mean, I am naturally, I think, wired to be optimistic, to look for joy, because in my life, there's been a lot of painful experiences that I've had to navigate. And I think we have a choice whether we sit in the pain and the misery or we process that pain and misery and try and shift and take the lessons from that pain. And I definitely, as a a young person, had to navigate a lot of complexity and trauma and loss. And I think that teaches you a lot about life. 
So for me, being the way I am, having this disposition of optimism and trying to contribute something positive so that when people interact with me, I leave them better than when they met me, that's a choice. And I think we all have that choice to make. In saying that, sometimes when you're in that trauma or pain state, you're not your best self to be able to do that. So in that situation, I think accessing a level of care, having no shame or stigma around getting psychological support. I still think in society, we have stigma around mental health. Having open and honest conversations, I think social media has changed the game for people to talk about things like mental health, which was once taboo. So, you know, there's a number of things that are important and self-preservation. So knowing if, for example, something is tipping me, if I'm hitting that point of outrage or, for example, Black Lives Matter, was I engaged in the conversation and what was happening? Me too. Was I engaged? Yes. But did I watch anything that was violent and going to traumatize me? Did I watch that guy go into the mosques in Christchurch and and commit that mass terrorist attack? No. I have a hard line. I don't need to watch that very graphic, violent stuff. It's not good for my mental health and well-being. And I would really discourage people from doing that. You know, I think we don't have parameters anymore. Yeah, we feed a beast. Yeah. Mm. yeah. With um, clearly with what you've done, you've you've created a. Uh, I mean, we never create, I suppose, success or progress or an impact solely on our own. How important is your inner circle of people around you to support you to be able to do what it is you've actually done and, you know, going to do in the future? I I definitely am a believer in allyship and building a strong network. I believe that every, every fight for a type of justice or for the betterment of society or to create good, there is probably someone who is thinking and feeling the same way as you. So for me, finding those people has always been important. And I think it's really enabled me to be more effective. And authenticity, how important has that been in your journey in terms of your unfiltered self? (laughs) Oh, goodness. Maybe getting in trouble a few times. (laughs) I have gotten in trouble many times. My former boss, I worked at the Australian Federal Police and my former team leader, Jeanette, God bless her. She was so, we were from complete opposite walks of life in terms of age, lived experience, cultural experience. And she'd often say to me, Amna, perhaps you shouldn't say that. I don't want you to get fired. (laughs) (laughs) So she could filter it for you, yeah. She would actually say to me, maybe there's a better way we can go about that because if you say it like this, you're not going to have the desired outcome. So maybe we can either reword it or maybe, and also, you know, this is incredible. Jeanette, as a white woman, used her white privilege in a way to enable others. So... You know, when I was working there, she had three decades experience on me. Um, she, she and I would discuss when is it best for me to speak and when is it best for her to speak? When do we use our influence, our position of power to be the voice that comes to the table to advocate for something? And I think there was, it taught me something around allyship with people from all walks of life and understanding power. And, and influence, you nailed influence. You started to understand the people of influence that you can utilize to fulfill your purpose. And I think people that are too unfiltered and polarizing fail to influence. And I see this a lot with frustration and people that, that work in middle management or in large organizations or in life. They feel voiceless, but at the same time, 
they feel that just expressing their voice and their opinion means everyone's just going to accept it. And I think there's there's two two elements to influence. There's the influence piece, which has come from that positive intent, but then there's a piece that where influence is actually manipulation. And what I loved, you know, when you said before, I mean, was about the fact that you did it through aligning yourself with other people that are on it. That I don't, would would imagine they're on the, you know, the common path, the common set of values, and a common belief in the, the actual mission or the goal that you're looking to achieve. So let's talk, Amner, about the journey. I think let's and and let's keep it with humanity. I think humanity, in general, believes that everything you know should come easily, and people who are successful are lucky. And don't get me wrong, there's always a degree of luck. But with you fulfilling your purpose, when do you think you've achieved it? Ever? Do you think it's something that has an end? No, I don't think it has an end date. I think it's a lifelong journey and commitment. And as long as I'm on that path and renewing my intention on that path and, you know, just taking myself to account and sitting every so often and going, well, what have I achieved and where am I now and where am I going? Am I aligned? I think that's the most important thing. And I ask myself with every board I've ever sat on, Um, my employment opportunities, my volunteer work, in whatever capacity I choose to serve, I always ask myself, like, am I aligned? Am I purposeful? Am I doing this just so people look at me and go, oh, wow, look at her. She's so influential. She's so this, she's so that. If it's about status, then I'm, I'm only harming myself. Like, will I have a massive Instagram audience? Maybe. Will I be well known? Maybe. But will I feel fulfilled? No. So for me, it's about just, looking inwards. And that brings us back to that question of success, Sean. Success in the social media Instagram world is a Bugatti, a Ferrari, a big hotel, gold taps in the in yeah, the fancy bedroom. five-star restaurants yeah. or whatever, <laughs> you know, the good side, not the backside. But how do you define success, Emna? It's that culture, that Instagram, and not just Instagram, like all this social media culture, all it's doing is reinforcing capitalist ideas that if I have, I am successful. And that's not success. You know, I often think that people I know who are poor or struggling have more gratitude and joy and meaning in their life than people who have amassed all the wealth in the world. And I think that has so much to do with perspective. So what do we value? And I think, you know, the consumption of goods, the attachment to importance or significance and finding meaning in who we are in that superficial stuff, it has an expiry date, you know, whereas if your values aligned, it's it's you're going to find meaning for a lot longer in your life and be able to anchor yourself in something that fills you up. I totally agree. I had that experience two and a half years ago when we decided to travel around Australia in a caravan and we, we shared 70% of what we owned and basically you know gave it away, sold it, friends, whatever, took stuff to the tip, whatever it was. And that was an incredibly liberating experience because once we took off and you know just our van and our four-wheel drive and that was it. I felt more successful at that point than I had ever before in my life. And it's almost like the things that you own start to have an element of control over you because you need these things now. And now that you need them, there's this, it's, it's just this, uh, it's almost like an energetic control, energetic pull. And it was hard which is, work. Which is relentless. It's relentless. And, and, it never, and the more you have, up, the, the, the more, more you it want. creates. Mm. So it perpetuates, yeah, wanting more, but then it creates more of this well, now you've got that thing, you need to maintain it or fix it or service it or store it somewhere. So you need a bigger house or those people that have just too much stuff. So they rent a storage shed to put stuff that they never use in 
that's not the representation of success at all. So I, I love how you explain that very, very eloquently, very clearly, and and very much the you know what I've grown to understand after you know going on a journey from head to heart myself, from being all you know ego driven and it's about stuff, and that made me feel good for a fleeting moment. But I need to feel good from and successful internally, irrespective of who I'm showing up as, what I have, or what I've done. And that's a great segue, Amna. Because you're a role model, you're an aspirational figure, there would be young women, irrespective of their religion or race, that would look up to you. And we know at the few that to be that person is, is a struggle and it's, it, there's pain involved and, it, and it's not easy. And within the world today, it seems like people want an, an easy way to live and they don't want any of this pain and any, and any heartache or any, or any drama. But what would you say to people when you tried to explain the value of pain, the value of failure, the value of hardship, how does that make you feel today as a person overcoming those trials and tribulations? I feel incredibly strong and resilient. And I think resilience is really important for making it through life. We live in unprecedented times. It's been said time and time again. And with the global warming crisis that we've got, they're saying that we're probably going to face more and more global diseases or pandemics moving into the future if we don't change what the world looks like and, and what we take from the earth. And so for me, it's like, okay, with all this resilience, with this capacity that I have, how do I help the people around me navigate what is challenging and uncertain? How do you tread through that? And I feel like all that pain and all the times that I felt like I was at my lowest and really struggling prepared me for the things that I'm navigating today. So I, I feel very grateful. That's very powerful. It's very powerful. And I think that's such an important lesson for everyone to understand that the, these painful things that happen to us in life, are, as you get older and more experienced and wiser, they're a gift. They're, there's something not to shy away from, but you certainly need to, to, to learn that lesson. And I think a, you live a more fulfilled life. The more you fail, the more you experience, the more challenges that you, uh, that you overcome. It's part of, I believe, you know, those failures are part of that. It's like each one's building a brick that you can now step up on next time. And you may not notice that you're doing it, but later on you, you go back and you, you step and you're like, oh, hang on, I've got this solid foundation to step on. And that came from this situation that at the time looked like a incredibly, incredibly challenging, um, you know, situation. So if you were to take the, the number one thing that you've learned in your journey so far in life, you know, business cultural, it doesn't matter, every aspect, you could take it back and deliver it to a younger version of yourself. You know, what would that, that seven message, year old in yeah, the maybe playground. the seven-year-old in the playground, what would the message be that you would say to that seven-year-old version of yourself? I would cuddle her, you know, because I think she was, she wanted to cry and she didn't. And I think what that taught me in life was not to cry, to just always be brave and strong and that it's okay to cry. You know, I had to learn that as an adult. And I think a lot of adults are socialized not to cry as an expression of sadness or pain. So I would go back and I would cuddle that seven-year-old and I would tell her it's going to be okay. And I would hear her. I would let her speak why she's upset and, and just listen. You know, I think that's the greatest gift we can give children. Wow, that's, that's pretty powerful. That almost made me cry. Bless you, um, dude. Let it out. <laughs> yeah. Down with toxic masculinity that tells you you can't cry. You cry. 
military indoctrination from the age of 19. It's still, I'm almost there. It's, it's a lifelong <laughs> commitment to unlearning. Yeah. Amna, thank you so much for making the time uh, to talk Incredible. to us today and sharing with our community uh, what it takes to be one of the few people that can drive some meaningful change in the world. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you to ICMI, the uh, Speakers Bureau. If you would like Amna to come in and share her incredible story, which has so many layers, icmi.com.au. Thank you also to Momentum Media, our media partner, uh, Sean Sewell's uh, Inner Circle, and uh, Afterburner, afterburner afterburner.com.au. Thank you, Amna. Thanks again, Shawnee. And uh, all the best with the rest of your week and driving that change. Hope you win the next match, Amna. Thank you. This has been The Few Podcast with Boo and Sean. If you've got value from this episode and you would like to support us, please share it with your friends. If you're posting this on social media, use the hashtag The Few so we can see who's listening. The Few Podcast is recorded at Momentum Media in Sydney, Australia. To listen to more episodes, visit us at fewpodcast.com and make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. Dream big, keep pushing, and one day you can become one of the few. We'll see you next week.